Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'd like to add my own pastoral word to what Sally has already lifted up in prayer regarding the events of this past week. We entered the week as a worship team thinking that the sermon and the worship services were all heading in one particular direction. And in fact, an earlier version of this sermon was finished on Wednesday night. But then we all know what we have experienced as a country over the past few days. The, event, the events of Wednesday and Thursday immediately cast into a very different light the scripture reading for the day as well as the thematic direction of the worship service for this morning. Which means basically over the past 48 hours, this sermon has gone through essentially a complete rewrite. Even just taken individually, each of the events that we've experienced this week are in and of themselves horrific and tragic. But when you compound them with what we've experienced over the past several weeks, with a month-long journey of tragedy and trauma, beginning, of course, with the tragic shooting in Orlando, and moving, crisscrossing all around the world from Turkey to Bangladesh to Baghdad to South Sudan, and now add to this exhaustive and exhausting list Baton Rouge and St. Paul and Dallas. We might find ourselves figuratively, if not literally, raising our hands into the air and screaming, What in the world? is going on with this planet. Or as many of my Facebook friends who are clergy have been streaming through my news feed, the very same words, How long, O Lord? How long must innocent people suffer? How long for evil and wickedness and suffering seem to prevail? Our first instinct is to find blame, naturally. That's a reasonable first instinct when things like this happen. When it comes to diagnosing a problem, we want to identify the cause. We want to isolate the reason. We want to find the reason for the disease. But when it comes to treating such a complicated set of issues as what as prompted these tragedies, we find that identifying the cause, in fact, means aligning ourselves with a cause. For example, if we say that the problem is gun control, that we need tighter gun restrictions, then other people will immediately identify us as being part of a particular cause related to gun control. Or if we say that the problem is the plight of African Americans or discrimination against gays and lesbians or Islamophobia or immigration reform or government gridlock or, or economic inequality or, or mental health support 
As much as we identify each of those as the cause, immediately there will be people who disagree with us, who simply lump us, confine us as being part of just another cause. Let alone the fact that we're part of a church. Because when you think about it, the church in the world today is living in a time where our glory days seemingly are in the past. Long gone are the days when it seems like the church had any kind of moral authority or significant cultural influence to speak a challenging and prophetic word to the problems that we face today. Long gone are the days when people in society would pause, would stop what they're doing and crane their necks toward the church to see what the pulpit says about what's wrong with the world today. It seems like a long time since the church has had any significant kind of moral authority to speak a timely word about the travails of our day. Because now, just like everything else, to call yourself a Christian and to be part of a church means that other people will automatically lump you in as being part of just another cause. Just one voice among many. Except, except for this, except for the realization that if there is any one common denominator, if there is any one common thread that ties all of the tragedies that we've experienced over this past week, it is this. It is, it is that we fear those who are different from us. We distrust people who do not look like us or act like us or believe like us or worship like us or love like us. The old adage is as true now as it ever has been. We tend to draw circles to define who is in and who is out. And inevitably, when we do, we draw those circles around ourselves to put us on the inside and to put others on the outside. Our default mode as a civilization is one of exclusion rather than embrace. And if that's true, friends, if that is the single common denominator among all of these tragedies, then fundamentally, you know what that means? This is a spiritual issue. It is a theological issue. It is far deeper than debates over gun control and immigration. It is far deeper than issues of racism or homophobia or Islamophobia. The deepest way to see this is as a theological issue. Because it means that we as a human civilization are failing to see others the way God sees all of us. As people all created in the image of that same God. And here's something else. 
because it's a theological issue, then the church has to be part of the conversation. And in fact, I'll go one step further. Because it's a spiritual issue, the church is part of the solution. And because you're part of the church, that means you're part of the solution too. In the way you act. In the way you relate to others. In the way you perceive the world. The way you interact with God and with the stirrings within your own soul. Simply by acting and thinking as Christ has commanded us. If it is true that what ails our world is a theological issue, then it is up to us as practicing theologians, all of us, to practice a different kind of life because we believe in a very different kind of love from God. It begins with confession. It begins with our own repentance It begins with acknowledging any of the ways that we, you and I, have contributed to the kind of polarizing and divisive world that we live in, in the way that we talk to one another, in the way that we relate to people who are different from us, in the way that we understand wrongs that are done to us, in the way that we interact with one another through social media. It begins with allowing the Spirit to work within our hearts, To address any prejudice or condescension that we have felt towards someone simply because they are different from us. It begins with actively and intentionally reaching out in love and support to both the victims and the perpetrators of these crimes. It means standing in solidarity with those who have been harmed whether they be gays and lesbians or African-Americans or law enforcement officers or white people or brown people or Muslims or anyone who has suffered harm because they've been rejected simply because of who they are. And it also means finding healthy ways to express your emotions, even the tough emotions, even the Ones that are hard to acknowledge. The day after the shooting in Dallas, noted speaker and author Brene Brown posted these very wise words on her Facebook page. In a time when our news feeds were filled with such blame and vitriol, these words from Brene Brown, someone that maybe you have experienced through her writing or through her TED Talks, were very true simply because they were so introspective and they were so clearly spoken. This is what she wrote. I woke up this morning looking for someone to blame, someone to hate, someone who I could make the single target of my fear about the officers killed in Dallas and the killing of Alton Sterling and Philandro Castile. It was such a desperate feeling to want to discharge the uncertainty and scarcity. And then it dawned on me that this is the exact drive that fueled what's happening right now. 
instead of feeling hurt, we act out our hurt. Rather than acknowledging our pain, we inflict it on others. And neither hate nor blame will lead to the justice and peace that we all want. It will only move us further apart. But we can't forget that hate and blame are seductive. Anger is easier than grief. Blame is easier than real accountability. And when we choose instant relief in the form of rage, we are in many ways choosing permanent grief for the world. Her words are right on. We are part of the solution because this is a theological issue. It begins with our own confession and repentance. It moves to seeing other people the way God sees them. And it involves finding healthy ways to express our deepest and toughest emotions. The good news is, this morning, we have two resources at our disposal to discover just how to do that. The first is the Bible. The second is a Disney movie. I'll start with the Bible first. (laughs) This is exactly the kind of intentional decision making that needed to happen on a daily basis that Paul was talking about in his letter to the Galatian church. Because he portrayed for the early Christians two courses to follow, two roads to travel on, two paths to pursue. On the one hand, he said, there is a path that will lead to, quote, hate, fighting, losing your temper, conflict, and group rivalry. Friends, we've seen lots of that path in the last month. But then Paul talks about a different path. One that he describes as, quote, living by the Spirit and exhibiting qualities of the fruit of the Spirit. You heard them. Sheila read them for you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. On a nearly daily basis, you and I are entrusted with the responsibility of deciding which path we are going to take. How we will relate to people who are different from us. How we will relate to the outside world. How we are going to respond to people who have done wrong to us. There is the way of the natural world. And then there is the way of the spirit. Paul says to the Galatian church and says to each one of us this morning. Which way are you going to choose? Paul was writing these words. He was writing against the backdrop of a prevailing philosophy that had undergirded much of the first century Greco-Roman world. One of the dominant philosophies was something called Stoicism. Many of you have heard of this. Stoicism was a school of philosophy that suggested that when things happen in the world, when things happen in one's life, the best strategy is simply to accept one's fate, to allow things to happen while suppressing 
all of your emotions, especially the toughest and darkest ones. To be a stoic meant to repress one's anger, conceal one's sadness, hide one's disgust and fear, basically show no emotion whatsoever. But in Paul's view, to live that way, to live in the way of the natural world, meant that if those emotions were not expressed and embraced in some healthy way, then those emotions were going to come out in a destructive way. In a way that causes harm to oneself and to other people. And that is the basis of the Disney movie. How timely is it that this second movie, this second stop on our five-part series of going through popular movies to learn about the Christian faith is the movie called Inside Out. The film Inside Out profoundly explores these issues under the clever disguise of being a family-friendly Pixar animated cartoon. But make no mistake, if you've seen the movie, you know this is no child's story. This is a story for all ages. Because it teaches us a lesson that we all need to learn, regardless of our stage in life. Lessons that can be applied to all adults, even today. Even though on the surface, it just seems like a kid's story. For those of you who have seen the film, you know that much of the movie takes place in the mind, inside the mind of an 11-year-old girl named Riley. And the five dominant emotions that are at work inside her head, from left to right, fear, sadness, joy, disgust, and anger. Each of these five emotions... We're vying for attention inside Riley's brain, just like the very way that our emotions swirl around inside us in the wake of tragic events like this past week. What the movie tells us is that unless we find a healthy way to express those emotions, then they will come out in unhealthy ways. Just like in this scene that we're about to show you that takes place around a family dinner table. Riley and her family had just moved 1,900 miles to their new home in San Francisco, California, where Riley knew nobody, and she was struggling to establish her brand new life. And it's in this moment around the family table where all of the emotions that had been bottling up inside her and her parents all came out at once in an unhealthy Way. Oh, how I would wish to get a show of hands in the sanctuary this morning of how many marriages are like that and how many family dinner table conversations we've had like that in this place. The truth is, all of us have. It's what our emotions do. They compete for our attention. They, they want to be expressed, but instead we find ways to keep them bottled up. For most of the movie, Riley is at odds with her parents and at odds with her new schoolmates, at odds with the world, and in fact, even at odds with herself. And try as she might, 
to be a good stoic and to just accept her fate and sweep her emotions under the rug, she finds out she can't. Because in fact, by doing so, she makes choices that are destructive, that eventually would cause harm to herself and grief to her family. Because she decided to run away, a choice that would put her own life in danger and introduce the possibility of real harm to herself and to the people who loved her the most. Now, for those of you who saw the movie, you know how it was resolved in the end. It was resolved not through violence, not through vengeance or revenge. It wasn't resolved by taking people who were different from Riley, like her parents, and lumping them into causes and categories in order to confine them to a box and keep them under control. The way the conflict was resolved was when Riley and her family sat down and looked at each other face to face, person to person, eye to eye, heart to heart, and found some way to release those emotions in a healthy way, including the anger and the sadness and the disgust and the fear. Rather than keeping them bottled up, they found a way to both express their emotions and to receive the emotions from the other person. It happened when they saw in each other's faces not the face of an enemy, not someone who was different from them, but as a family member, a fellow sojourner on the journey who could also weep real tears and feel real pain and sense real sadness just like her. Brothers and sisters, at the core, this is a spiritual issue that we are dealing with in the world today. And the deepest wounds between us and others will not be healed through violence. And it will not be healed when we simply decide to keep our emotions in check and buck up and move on. The deepest wounds in our culture will only be healed when all of us stop drawing those circles around ourselves to define who's in and who's out. When we find ourselves finally able to express the depth of our pain, the reality of our sadness, the strength of our anger, the hardship of our disgust, and the ongoing thrum of our fears. Only then will we be able to see in others what God sees in all of us. The image of God in us all. Friends, this is a theological issue we're dealing with in the world today. Which means the church is part of the solution. And you're part of the church. And as a follower of Jesus, the solution begins within us.
Let's pray. Oh God, this is hard stuff. We have seen the terrible effects of people who have made wrong choices based on bad instincts. It is hard for us to see in others what you see in each of us. It's hard for us to see the image of you within every person. Especially in a world that is as broken as this one. We need your grace and your love to transcend the divisions and to break down the walls. And to help us accept each other. But may it be so. And may it begin with us. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.